The Energy Talk. Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk podcast. My name is Oluvumi Olajide and thank you so much for joining us again. Our guest for this episode is Eric Steinberger. Eric is the co-founder of Climate Science, a platform that has found a very creative way to help people learn about climate change and started out with just him and his friend. Since our humble beginnings as an Instagram account launched from a dorm room in late 2019, we've created resources enjoyed by hundreds of thousands of learners. We focus on solutions to climate change because we want to empower learners to take action. In less than two years, Climate Science has helped over 100,000 learners with their videos, graphics, and courses on climate change, and now has over 500 full-time staff and volunteers in over 30 countries. Eric and I have such a great conversation about what it was like starting Climate Science from an Instagram page to where it is right now, and his views on how we can navigate the issue of climate change and how we can advocate for solutions and see them take effect in the real world. And now we'll hear from Eric. And as you hear from his background, he has almost nothing to do with a traditional background to climate science. I guess I've always been curious about major problems that society is facing. I I kind of start from the perspective that if you look at the last 10,000 years of humanity, you realize how incredible it actually is what we have been doing if you compare that to the 10 million years before that. So just the last 100 years are probably as exciting as the 10,000 years before. And those are as exciting as the 10 million years before. So I'm just curious to see what's going to happen in the next 10,000 years or even in the next 100 years. I, I don't know. It's just super cool to think about it. I don't think anyone can really make a realistic projection. But there are some things in the way to making that possible. And climate change is one of them. Sustainable energy is one of them. We're eventually going to run out of fossil fuels. So even if climate change wasn't a thing, we kind of need an alternative solution because we can only dig up so much stuff. Yeah, that's that's kind of my perspective. I, I just want humanity to be around for a long time. So that's one of the problems we have to solve in a way. And let's talk about your background a bit because you actually have a computer science background and your background is firmly rooted in tech. So is this branching out for you or do you see this as just applying your skill sets to just a real world problem? My research in machine learning has pretty much nothing to do with climate science, the, the organization I co-founded. They're as unrelated as it gets, but still, skills sort of transfer, at least, you know, the skill of understanding and thinking about abstract topics and problem solving, you know, the practice helps, even though the, the domain knowledge is very much useless across domains. The process of obtaining domain knowledge, I think, is, is one of the most useful things because you often cannot prepare for what you will need to know and you know, there are lots of companies, for example, outsourcing their IT and then depending on some agency to write their website. And it takes them two weeks to change a word on their website that, you know, if you're a developer, you just press three buttons, you push the thing and you, you deploy the thing and it's done. You know, the, the understanding of how to learn things, I think, is extremely helpful across domains, even if they don't connect through the domain knowledge. So that's definitely one of the things that I've taken from my machine learning research career to climate science. But there are many other things. Like I, I just I'm a very curious person. I did 3D animation before machine learning. I you know when I was 13 or 14 I started I downloaded Blender and a 3D animation software and just started playing around with it and ended up actually getting an internship at Austria's biggest advertisement agency and they let me make an ad that ran on national TV for a few months. It was it was, it was really fun. I just I just love doing 
fun stuff. I, I wanted to work for Disney when I was younger. You know, then that changed to AI, and now that's climate change. Um, but I'm never really, I never really stop with the things I start. It's just that I pick up new things that I also do. In a way, you know, some some people might think that that dilutes focus, but actually, I don't think that's true. I, you know, as I think you need to have a, a vast variety of experiences and perspectives to really be innovative in anything. So many frameworks and so many ways of thinking that I learned from machine learning helped me figure out things in, in climate change and in education because most people in education just do not have an algorithm mindset. They don't have a problem-solving mindset. They don't, they, you know, they, they don't come at things from an, this is a previously unsolved problem, how do we solve it perspective. And th- so that really does help, even though in many ways, you know, most of the domain knowledge doesn't directly translate. It comes in handy every now and then. And I think it's underappreciated how helpful it is for a founder or anyone in higher level leadership of an organization to know a bunch of things that seem irrelevant, but come in handy once every two months or once every month. Because that's the problem that other organizations just stop at. And they're like, oh, we don't know how to solve this. We're just going to let it sit there. Or, oh, we're just not going to do that very well because we don't know better. Or, oh, we're going to outsource this. You know, that leads to delays and stuff. So we, we never really run into these problems because there's always someone around who has enough of an idea to learn how to solve it if they don't know how to and, and to, to solve it if they already do. So that, in that way, it is related. But we don't do anything with machine learning at climate science and we don't solve climate change in my machine learning research. So, or, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about one of those buckets here. So what is climate science and how did that motivation start up? Because now it's a fully realized platform, but it wasn't always like that. So walk us through the the idea stage and really starting off building up that platform in particular. I'm 22 now. I learned everything I know online. I had my first research role at university before I started my undergrad degree. And the reason I'm saying this is just to highlight how immensely empowering free online education. My family didn't have a lot of money. We weren't poor, but you know, we, I couldn't have paid for a course that, you know, on, on, I wouldn't have paid a couple hundred bucks for a, a course online that I don't know how, you know, how good is it. I, I, so it really helped that there was free online education, high quality teaching you anything from very beginner stuff to PhD level. I was always lucky to have people, well, have, I, I just reached out to people and they, I was lucky that they responded and said, yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you figure this out. I, you know, a research scientist at Google DeepMind helped me learn how to write papers. Uh, and I, a PhD student at the University of Luxembourg first taught me sort of the research mindset when I was 18. I was just, you know, I met that guy on Twitch. It's like, Funny story, but anyway, ended up working with him on his PhD thesis topic for a couple of months. Learned so much. I'm just really grateful that I had these opportunities. And I think most people aren't aware of how immense they are. If you're a curious young person, you know, 14, 15, 16, maybe even younger, and you want to accelerate your career path and you want to be extraordinarily good at something, you can do that online, period. Well, I thought that's not true for climate. You, there, there was no starting point. There are lots of papers that you can read. And if you're the kind of person that likes to read 100 papers, you can learn climate change solutions online. I am, I am that kind of person, so I enjoyed doing that. But at that point, I was 20. If I was 14, I wouldn't have, and I couldn't have. There was no fun, engaging, introductory resource that gives you a high-level overview of the complete complex picture of solving climate change. There are many things that consider one part of it, like planting trees, you know, is a very popular thing. But then again, there are papers that say planting trees can even be harmful, which is true. It depends on how you do it, where you do it. It's very complicated. There was nothing that covered the whole complete picture in a volume that is, you know, less than a degree program at a university. 
So when we started climate science, the idea was to do that in five hours. You have to be able to understand how humanity can solve climate change in five hours or less. If you think about it, you should be able to summarize that in like 10 sentences, ideally. But, you know, there's some level of some level of depth and complexity that needs to be understood to really get it. So we said five hours, you know, and that's how we started. And, you know, from there, we just branched out. We were like, okay, courses, first obvious thing to do. We realized people really love the quizzes in the courses, you know, the, the written stuff and the images are great, but people love the quizzes. So we made a quiz app. That quiz app has been taking off over the last, we just launched it last month. We're bringing it to web now. It's only in the app store at the moment. We realized people like competitions. So you know, some Listeners might be familiar with the International Maths, Chemistry, Physics Olympiad. You know, students take part, get some problems, and there's like a regional, national, international stage where, you know, you can show your talent in science. We thought, why are these kids being given like made up problems that don't really matter? It's like, why are they calculating stuff that's, you know, there's no relevance to it? Well, what if, what if we let them solve real global problems? What if we just give them SDG related, sustainable development goals related problems? Like, say, you know, Fiji's flooded, the UN gives you money you're the president, fix it. What are you going to do? So we give, we give students three hours, they can research online and they have to write up a solution plan and that, that's how they compete. So we, we, you know, we try to really get people to engage with real problems before they leave school. And you know, so many people come out of school not knowing how the real world functions and you know, that, that itself is, is an issue. So, so we started the Climate Science Olympiad. 2021 is the first year we'll do it. We already have almost a thousand uh, students who participated. We didn't really promote it widely yet even. We're actually kind of scared that it'll be too many to handle because we have to judge all of it. But we're expecting around 10,000 this year. And if this year goes well, we'll scale it up next year to you know, hopefully get to as many schools as possible. Uh, this year, we're going to have to cap it because we can't handle the whole judging volume yet. And anyway, we made children's books for for the youngest ones because obviously they can't read courses, you know, if you're, if you're five um, or, or seven or anything. But with corporate training, you know, we, we try to reach every age group and make learning how to solve global problems accessible instead of just boring and throwing some unrelated, like, uh, you know, some stats out of context at people. We're like, here is the complete thing the full picture, go through it. And by the end of it, you will understand how we can solve global problems. It doesn't just consider a part of the picture. You don't have to look for a second resource. We cite papers, thousands of papers at Climate Science. So you can read deeper if you want to. You can see where we got the information, but you don't have to look for it. It's right there. We do peer review our own content, as in we have scientists look at it, like published articles are being looked at, critically reviewed. This is questionable. Check this again. This could be worded differently. And that goes through multiple iterations. So we really try to have the highest possible quality while also having the breadth while keeping it brief and concise. Yeah, I think that's kind of that summarizes what we do. So far, we've, we've reached, you know, on the order of hundreds of thousands of learners, unique learners. And 2021, we even uh, now got signed that, that we're going to get a segment on TV, which, which is quite nice to reach, you know, an even broader audience. And yeah, it's, it's growing really rapidly. Just last month, the last month, the users in our courses doubled the user numbers. So it's been really enjoyable, and the team is amazing. So if there's one thing I can highlight about climate science, it's like we have 260 volunteers. They're organized like you know high speed startup. It's nothing like a typical charity. We are a registered nonprofit, but they, they work as if it was like you know a, a, a Facebook in the early stage. It's just so amazing to see a team get together and work as effectively while still keeping up that you know loving environment and culture. So yeah, the, the climate science team probably is, is the most enjoyable part of it, and at the same time, the only reason why it can work as well as it does, and and why we're able to do what we do while others. Have haven't been. It's it's just we have incredibly many smart people from different backgrounds coming together, you know, building this repository of content, others helping design it, helping create the visuals, helping create the videos, helping create the software for it, the community around it. So yeah, that 
that's definitely also something to highlight is often neglected. I get way too much of the attention. Like there should be 260 people sitting on this podcast. I actually want to talk about those 260 volunteers and awesome people you have on your team. The project has grown quite a lot. I'm not sure what your expectations are, but I think it's fair to say that you might have been, it's it's really blown past expectations you might have had, especially in the early stages, because I'm, I'm sure you might have been a bit more conservative. Is this something that's going to take up your entire attention now? Because you mentioned about being interested in many things and really going towards where your curiosity is. So how are you looking at taking the platform further? Is it, is it something that you already know or is it something that you're not sure if this is 100% what you want to commit to long-term? So it has it blown past my expectations? Initially, the expectation was for this to be an Instagram page that takes up a couple hours a week to, you know, I don't know if people are familiar with the Feynman method. If you can't teach something, you don't understand it. That's sort of Feynman's proposal is if you want to learn something, teach it and see what people don't understand when you explain it and understand it better yourself until everyone understands it. So that was the initial idea, but that ended up getting 40,000 followers in two months. So um, <laughs> we were like, okay, we're just posting some cartoons and write ups of what we thought is like interesting. And apparently this is the most credible resource people can find on solutions to climate change. Well, there is a pretty bad problem here, if that's true. <laughs> we even got emails and messages from teachers saying that they want to use it in their classrooms. They didn't know who we were. If they knew who we were, they probably wouldn't have done that because we're two <laughs> students at the university, at university that I didn't even take, like, I, I, I'm a computer science student. I have no background in this, right? And schools were like, can I use your resources? So that's how big the issue was, right? Obviously, we have other people working on this too. So I don't, I don't write all the content because we're just very, in the very beginning when we were two people. Anyway, so yeah, it has definitely blown past expectations over and over and over and over again. It's, it keeps doing that. Like I keep having expectations and then it just goes better. It's like every single time so far. You know, there's some, some projects that you do and you're like, okay, yeah, they don't work, but we do overall, like every time, it, like every, every few months. It's like just yesterday we had a call where we were like giving our weekly updates in the core team. You know, I was like casually saying, yeah, we have this, this corporate training new, this new thing. And we have the TV, which, you know, a couple million people expected viewership. And we have, you know, and someone else is saying, yeah, and the three new courses are going to be finished soon. And it's just at that point, like it was, I just realized it's so casual that we're saying these things and they're just not even <laughs> exciting anymore. It's like, that's just normal now. What happened? It's like that is one of those things would have gotten us excited for a month like last year. That would be like, oh my God, yay. Uh, but, but now it's just like all of these things happening all the time. That, that, that is the most surreal thing that, you know, what would have been an incredible achievement six months ago is now a weekly routine. So I'm extremely proud of the team. None of this would be possible if they weren't as driven as they are and, and working on this as intensely as they are doing. But yeah, so very much blown away by the progress. I, I do, you know, I look at the climate science, I, I don't take any money from climate science, and I never will. We did get a grant from Eric Schmidt, the previous Google CEO. And you know, we're, we're looking at a couple of other possible funding streams as well. So it's not that we don't get any money. And we, we do have some paid staff at this point, it started late last year, I think November, or December, that we hired our first person full time, you know, we got a few now. But I, I, I committed to never taking any money from climate science, not just now, but like never. The, the reason for that is pretty simple. We have 260 volunteers. I don't want them to feel like they're working into my pockets. I didn't start climate science to make money. I, I started climate science because I was frustrated that young people aren't able to solve important problems because they can't find resources about them. I was able to do that. I had the phenomenal opportunity to show and demonstrate my um, understanding of machine learning through research early on, you know, through reaching out to people and just asking if I can work with them. And, you know, they said, yes, that component still exists in climate. But getting to that point, just I didn't think it was possible. 
in, in 2019 because there was no entry resource. So, so I just really wanted to solve that. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy in a way that I can give back so early in my life and, and see some things I benefited from greatly and be like, okay, hey, I can contribute to this now. So that's really what climate science is for me. Uh, I, I just want to give other kids the opportunity to do what I did when I was 14, 15, 16. And, you know, from then, once you're in it, like, it's easy. Just read the papers and, you know, talk to people. That opportunity existed. But getting to that point just didn't exist. There was no inspirational source that gets you into the science of, of solutions and gets you that full realistic perspective. Yeah, but I, I, I do spend, I, I am sort of a full-time volunteer, I, I, I like to say, on, <laughs> on CS. I, I wake up in the morning and I get to uh, have a full-time hobby. I On the side at the moment, I, I do some consulting, management consulting for, com- for, well, for startups, helping them set up their teams to be ready for growth and, you know, working on some of the product features. It's also something where it just comes in super handy that I've done quite a few things already, like career-wise, and, and seen quite a few perspectives, it really helps to combine fields. This, this is actually very interesting. So if it's okay, I like to go under the hood a bit because I think it was last year we talked to a bunch of young people also doing projects. And one of the biggest challenges, especially when you're young and you're doing a project, is I think it's not unique just to the energy space, is how to formalize your project. Because you, as, as you said, if, if they knew that you were just two people in university doing these things right on the Instagram page, the, the, the reaction might have been different. So how did you formalize this, especially when it comes to the people funding to keep the project alive because I know that's also a very important thing and I don't know some people don't like talking about money but I feel like if you truly want to build the project you have to realize that you need resources to scale it you need people and you need funding as well so how, how did you guys cross that bridge was it an easy transition for you guys to have from two people to 260 volunteers and some full-time staff was it was that an easy transition to make and how do you manage it now because I know that um, time commitment can scale as exponentially as the platform does so so I like to hear your your thoughts on that? You know, I actually disagree. I think funding comes last in on priorities. If you're a for-profit company, your impact scales with your funding, usually. Mm-hmm. If you get more funding, you can hire more people, you can run more ads, and your like, you know, your profits scale with your funding if, if you're doing it well. And if you're doing it well, it happens at a positive ROI. That's what Series B, C, D are for. Um, if you're a nonprofit, your funding scales with your impact. So the more you have done, the more money will be thrown at you. We we first do stuff and then we say, hey, don't you want to fund this stuff we did? We're going to do more of it. And that is a much more convincing proposal to any funder in a nonprofit space than we want to do this. Do you want to take the risk of funding it? It's like, here's the thing. This is the impact it already had. We can do 10 times as much if you give us this amount of money. So that's just for the funding aspect. I've, I've repeatedly found having a prototype of something ready before you pitch it for the first time. It's just like, and I always go in with the mindset and with the, I even say this, we're going to do this anyway. If you don't give us money, we're going to do it anyway. This is going to exist. It's just going to exist a few months earlier and maybe a little better if we get your money. But we're going to do this no matter what. And it's true. There have been some things, some projects we applied for funding for we didn't get and we're doing it. It's, it's not not happening because we don't get funding. So on the list of priorities, funding for me and I guess, therefore, us is the very last point on, on, on my job list. The, the most important one is to make sure that we're building something that is really useful and just good. That by far the most important thing. We, if you don't build a good product, you can have as much funding as you want. Nobody will use it. it it's just, so what's the point then? It, this is obviously in, you know, in the B2C space, I guess. If you're in the B2B space, the world works a little bit differently, but still you need to build a good product. So that's by far number one. And, and the vast majority of my day goes into that. I don't think much about funding. I, I think mostly about how to build a good product. And the second point would be, and this is needed to build a good product. So in a way, you could say it's the first. You, you have to 
find everyone's on your team, you have to find everyone's reason. You need to find out why they do what they do and help them achieve that why by aligning their actions with the organization's goals. So for example, early 2020, we recruited a software developer student at University of Birmingham who didn't have any previous web development experience, but he really wanted to learn it. And he wanted to you know, start his own company Become a CTO. He's not just the kind of guy you know who wants to rich and fame, you know, be rich and famous. He, but he just wanted the experience of that, and he thought he doesn't yet have the skills to to do it. And, and so this might be a good opportunity for him to learn it. So he said, "Yeah, we're, I'm going to volunteer for a while. I'm, I'm going to send. You know, I would like I would like to take up you know a CTO role of, of this as a volunteer. You know, he he didn't know how to code. Two months later, we had our website deployed with the courses and everything on. Them. Previously, it was just you know on on the on the app, and he now has his own company, and he is the CTO of that company. He has investment." So that's like a year ago, right? That this happened. So you got to do this for everyone. You, you got to look at, at your team and you, you got to ask them, you know, hey, I know we all care about fixing climate change. I know we all care about getting great education out there. But what else? Like, what else can we do to, to make this amazing? One thing I've learned over, over time, also in the you know, for profit space, is money definitely doesn't create loyalty. You can pay people as much as you want to. If they don't like you or they don't like the job, they'll f*** you over every single time. There, there's no way you can buy loyalty. You, you create it by trusting people and by helping people and you by doing that genuinely. And life is just so much better if you do that. Life is so much better if you work with people who genuinely care and who you genuinely care for. You want that. Like It's more like a family than work if you do that. If you got to be like, oh, is this person really doing what they said they would do? Am I paying them too much? If I pay them more, do they? That's not a nice day to have. And it doesn't scale. That's why big corporations are often so inefficient. Those people at the bottom and middle of the chain don't give the slightest amount of beep about the company because the company doesn't care about them. Why would they? Like, sure, they get their salary, but they only get their salary so that they don't go to another company. It's not because the company cares, they don't care. It's like, this is a good ROI. I'm going to pay that person X amount per year so that they stay and they do their stuff as much. You know, if you have that perspective, you're not going to get a good team together because really good people can find roles elsewhere. They can go anywhere. To, to get a good team or a great team, you have to give people the opportunity to grow in the, in, the, in the ways they want to grow at. You have to let them do things that they're not good at yet, but they will become very good at during the process. You have to let them learn. You have to give them experiences that they're really looking for. Listen to them. Ask them what they what they want, what they want to experience, and then try to give it to them. That's that's how we built the team. It's just from small scale upwards, there's a requirement of productivity you have to meet if you're part of climate science. And if you don't meet that, you know, that's unfortunately the end of that. It's not it's not a you know number of hours or anything. It's just the output has to be in proportion to you know what what we expect the product to, to do. If, if you're not good at writing content, you're not going to write content. If, if you're not you know, able to write code fast enough and good enough, you're, you're not going to write code. We might find other roles that you fit in, but you know, that, 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 that is also important. And people who are really good at what they do, they appreciate that. It's actually quite a good way to test people. I sometimes do this in interviews. I, I, I announce that interviews are very strict. People who don't think they'll do well on them are like are nervous and they, they go like, oh, okay. Hmm. People who are who know that they're good at what they're doing, they're like fantastic because that means I don't work with idiots. I don't work with jerks. <laughs> I, I get to work with cool people that are good at what they do. They are reliable. Great. Reliable people want to work with reliable people. 
So you have to get rid of unreliable people. Otherwise, your reliable people will become unreliable. So you find reliable people that really care, that are good at what they do, that want to learn, that have the passion and drive to contribute to you know, the, the positive change that we care about. You put them in a room, and, and what you get out of it is, is what we have. So that's why I can't stop highlighting the importance of our team. It's, it's just that we've built it in the same way that you know, most successful, now large companies, back in the day startups, have, have tried to build it. I, I try to just learn from the people that did it the best and, and try to you know, modify things where useful for our context. But overall, the principles are the same, and you just need to, the discipline to do it. You need the discipline to reject 80% of your applicants. If you, you need the discipline to listen to people. And if you very much need a certain skill at the organization at the moment, but they really, like, even if they're good at it, they really want to learn this other thing. You've got to let them do both. So yeah, I think that's, that's the one thing I'd highlight. And it's, it's so often I see companies thinking about funding as if money can solve this issue. We, we had our first courses on the website before we got a single penny of funding. We had an audience of hundreds of thousands before we got a single penny of funding. It was there. We could have done it without any funding. I am still convinced. It would have been a lot harder, but we could have done what we have today without any funding. It would have been harder. I'm not saying that, that it would have been you know, as quick, but that's really not the key. It's totally not. You can give a back company millions and millions and they will not do anything good with it. That's a good point. Yeah. And uh, I actually just want to centralize this on energy now. So obviously you started off the platform with the intention of talking about climate change. You wanted to just make that bridge for young people to learn about it in a very accessible way. But I listened to this tech talk that you gave, TEDx talk, that was talking about the share of energy that contributes to carbon emissions and thereby climate change. So how has, how has energy really um, played into the project specifically just because this is the energy talk after all? So I just like you to talk <laughs> about that and how you see, because you are surprisingly not very opinionated about different energy sources, which, which I was quite surprised about. I don't have any opinions about anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. I hate so, opinions. Yeah. Opinions are the dumbest invention humanity has ever made. Uh, we, we shouldn't have opinions. We should have facts and uncertainty. That's it. You shouldn't, if you have facts and uncertainty and you pick one end of the uncertainty, that's just the definition of stupid. You know better. You know that there is uncertainty. Why are you picking one side? Just don't stick with the mean of the distribution and the, the uncertainty, you know. So yeah, I, you're right. I don't have any opinions. Th- that's one of, I guess, one of the influences that I, I did put in from the very start. It's like, we don't have opinions. If something looks good on, in numbers and it makes sense in the societal context, we will say it's good. And if it's not, we don't. And if someone's mad at us for saying that nuclear is quite a good option, if you look at it, it's just a bit expensive, but we can actually deal with this if we just stop being so negative about it and start applying innovation and, and making government regulation a little less awful, then that's, that's a good option. And if people don't like hearing that for stubborn reasons, then, well, you know, I hope they're, you know, all, all the best for them, but uh, <laughs> I can't fix that. I, I can give, you know, we can give them the info, but anyway. I want to talk about energy. Well, the reason why energy is so important is very from the same principles. Like so many people talk about plastic bags, so many people talk about you know various individual issues. Why don't people start with the pie chart of where emissions come from? We made that pie chart because we wanted to know. And the the answer is if you take all fossil fuel burning for any type of energy, like fuel, heating, cooling, you know, electricity, all that together you end up with over 70% of emissions. So clearly we've got to deal with that, right? Like we've got to stop burning those fossil fuels for energy. It's pretty obvious that if you just from, you know, the, the very few start from basics, you don't know that yet, right? That's, that's the obvious conclusion. There's agriculture is important for biodiversity and you can do lots of other stuff with it. Also a big chunk of, you know, the remainder. Got to deal with that too, important stuff. But 70%, like, come on, are you going to solve everything else and not the 70% or are you going to try to deal with the 70%? 
um, you're going to deal with those. So, so clearly, we look at energy quite in you know in quite a lot of detail. Um, you, you can decompose it, and then you know, since this is an energy podcast, I actually don't have to go into the very basics of things. I, I think, but you know, you can decompose energy into again electricity, heat, cooling, transport, and, and so on. A couple more smaller categories. Transport is looking quite good with with electric vehicles, and so you know, it's realistic to say that you know, projecting it'll probably be, be solved. Market pressures are in the right place. It's just going to happen now. All, all the companies are committing to going electric. We can't really do more. That's what I'm saying. Like you know. Say, what else were you going to do if, uh, other than all car companies saying that they're going to go all electric eventually and, and, you know, competing for that and governments giving subsidies? Like at this point, electric vehicles check, at least, you know, from what we can do. Semis are on the way. It's a little bit of a density, you know, and a specific energy thing. But, you know, we'll also be figuring that out probably. It's not very far off. Airplanes there, you know, you don't really get away with batteries at all. You're saying the wrong order of magnitude of specific energy. You'd probably need to go with something else. I, I don't really believe in the alternative fuels. If you, if you look at like, for example, palm oil and so on, like all the quote unquote biofuels, they, they're pretty bad for other reasons. So you'd, you'd, you'd likely want to stick if you can with hydrogen for, for aviation. Well, stick is good. You need to develop it first. It's not really <laughs> going to happen before 2040. But but, you know, we'll figure it out. There's some you know, efficiency, like flight efficiency has kind of capped. Like we can maybe go another 10% or so, but you're not going to half emissions again by making airplanes more efficient. It's just they're, they're so much more efficient already than they were just a short, you know, a couple of decades ago. Aviation is not looking great, but you know, that's so much for the fuel thing. Ships are, you know, similar. It's actually some really fun innovation. You guys, everyone listening should be, should Google for how ships or large container ships can use wind energy. It's, it's quite funny. It, it looks it looks really funny. Google it. Um, anyway, the electricity piece and um, the heating and cooling are, are two relevant ones, and steel and cement are relevant things that are harder to address. So, you know, solar and wind are very popular, but obviously you need energy storage to deal with that at a, at a very large scale. The, the assumption that many people make is that if we can deploy one wind turbine, we can deploy another one and it will be twice as good. This is true for the first like a couple of wind, wind turbines, but at some point you're just seeing that Oopsie, it's not that good anymore. Like at some points, we're just going to have to curtail uh, a lot of electricity. Uh, and, and at some points, we just don't get any. It's obviously a known problem. But, you know, a lot of people in the activism space at least don't really accept that yet. We're trying to have an impact on that and, and actually succeeding quite well. We've, we've really gotten a few activist leaders already to, to see the issue that you can't just deploy renewables today and it will solve all problems. I wish it would, but sadly, that's not the case. You know, again, I don't have opinions. I wish it was that way. But it's not. So you're just like, here's the fact. I hate it too. We're in the same boat. I don't like this, but that's what it is. So we've got to deal with it. You know, that's a that's a very spicy topic. And I feel like if I start on that, we'll be here for another 40 minutes probably. But I'm actually going to call you out on one particular thing that you said in Go the next talk, which was innovation will be the cure to climate change. And I know a lot of people who would disagree with that. And I, I think it comes from your bias. It's just what I feel your bias from, from, from working in the tech space. So um, how do you explain that? And because you, you didn't really get the chance to talk about that at length. So how do you really talk about this innovation will be the cure that needs to get the implementation right? That's not what I'm saying. So it's not just the technology. The way I would explain it is that there is no way 0% chance to solve climate change without innovation. There is no other path. It doesn't mean that innovation is going to be the magic silver bullet. And if we have innovation, everything is solved. We still need regulation. We still need the adoption of sustainable diets. You know, we still need a lot of cultural change. That stuff's not included in innovation and we need it too. It's equally important. It's the type of thing where you need three things and if one of them is not there, the problem isn't solved. You need all of them. But 
The issue is that there is a public bias in that we can solve climate crisis without innovation. There is no public bias that we can solve it without personal action. And there's no public bias that we don't need regulation. Everyone knows that we need regulation and everyone knows that we need cultural shifts. But there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people saying, a lot of voices saying that we don't need innovation. And that is just not true. It is just plain false. Show me a way to do it, to, to make cement without CO2 emissions. Show, show me. Design a grid that works without any fossil fuels. You know, you can do a lot with gas, but natural gas backups and so on. You, you know, you deploy high percentage of renewables, some nuclear, you know, and, and gas backups. That's great. It's not zero. What are you going to, okay, you're going to do carbon capture and storage. How much does that cost again? Ah, I see. Where are we going to store that? Oh, okay. We never tested this even remotely at scale. When did we deploy the first gas carbon capture? Oh, we didn't? Ah, okay. So you're going to deploy that technology and say that's not innovation. What, what is, like, we don't have it. All the things people talk about, we just do not have. We don't have energy storage that can deal with the large-scale deployments of renewables. There is lots of early-stage technology development going on, but that's the key, early stage. None of it is scale up. Scaling up is a hard thing. It's innovation. And the policy changes that are needed are, at the moment, mostly to fund this work and to enable it, to allow it to be faster by, you know, adjusting regulation in a way that allows for faster tests of certain technologies. And, you know, obviously, bring up funding. And once that's there, you need to deploy it. But look, 1970, the price of solar was hundreds of times higher than it is now of cell production. Hundreds of times. That was innovation, right? At that point, you know, we are now at the end of the innovation curve with, with solar. We know how to scale it. We know how to make it cheap. We know how to produce a lot of it. It's just that on this curve that started 1970 and goes to today with solar, with some technologies, we just aren't at the today level. We are 10 years earlier, and we do need to keep innovating. It's, it's just that if, if you look at the technologies that people say we should use to fix climate change, many of them just don't exist. So clearly, the only solution is to create them and then create the policy environment and the cultural environment that both enables them and accepts them, supports them. Some of them will still cost more than their fossil fuel alternatives. We need to fund that somehow. There needs to be social acceptance for that. There needs to be government support for that. You know, the policy frameworks that enable the long-term support of these things. There is no scalable carbon capture at the moment and storage. Doesn't, doesn't, we don't. It's not there. The, the scale that you need if you have the natural gas backups to make that net zero, which net zero in itself is actually, you know, maybe I don't know how much time we have, but you, you, don't, you want to get to zero, not to net zero. This net zero idea is a fantastic joke that, that we're all playing, but we want zero. So, you know, you, eventually you need to throw away all that gas. It's just if you run the, you know, like, how are you going to design this grid? There's, it's not happening. And then lots of stuff just isn't, electri- like, isn't electric yet. We, we can make a lot of stuff electric that should be, you know, like transportation is being made electric. We can make heating and cooling more electric. That requires the re-implementation of so many things that have already been done. That, the large part, is you know the implementation of it and and the and the deployment. But then it's so expensive that why wouldn't you innovate to make it a little cheaper? Why wouldn't you start with just putting in some technology development first to make it better and more attractive, longer lasting, more versatile? Why wouldn't you do things like the European supergrid, make it better? Why not? It's not like we have the magic silver bullet to solve climate change and we're just too stubborn to press the button to deploy it. It, I, I encourage everyone who says that that is the thing and that we don't need innovation to write down, like open a Google Docs, open a Word document and write down a 10-page proposal for you know the global community, maybe China, US, Africa, Australia, to tackle each part of the world, South, Africa, South America. Write down a plan. How are you going to solve it? What are the exact steps you're going to take? Run the maths, step-by-step action plan, financial, technological, labor. How are you going to get it done? 
you will run into issues of things that just do not exist. Things that don't pan out. You'll have to read thousands and thousands of papers, but that's literally what we did. And you just run into barriers over and over again. Oh, this doesn't exist. Oh yeah, that would theoretically work, but we're just not there yet. Ah, that sounds like a promising thing. But the projection is that in 10 years, it might be cheap enough, hopefully, energy storage, for example, to, to deploy at large grid scale. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's like, I wish it was that way. I wish we didn't need innovation. It's the same thing, but we just do. Lab-grown meats, like the price has declined by a factor of over a thousand in the last few years. Can people grasp that years ago, people said we don't need innovation, right? There comes your innovation. It's, like, it's, it's now six times as expensive as real meat. Isn't that crazy? Don't you remember like those videos saying like, this is the $250,000 burger? <laughs> Do you remember that? Have you seen them? Yeah, I've seen them. Not true anymore. This is not a $50 burger. Mm. And it tastes better than it used to when it cost 250k. Don't you want to get like a $5 burger? I want to get a $5 burger. That's innovation right there. That's actually very, very interesting. And we are running out of time, unfortunately. So I want to end this on just on two notes. So what has been your biggest surprise so far about starting and running climate science? And then once you answered that, what excites you the most for the future of your operations? I think my, my biggest surprise has been that, and in a way this is very uplifting and motivating with regards to, to climate change, that there really are a lot of people that want to solve the problem. There are voices that just, they want the problem to be solved. It's a different thing. They want someone else to solve it. They push it on a the government. They're like, why don't you do policies? Sure, yeah, they, they have to, don't get me wrong. Government should do policies, right? And, and that's needed. The general public, that's their role, pushing the government to do things. But I was very positively surprised and impressed by the amount of talented individuals that genuinely cares about pushing progress on global problems from a at least semi-altruistic perspective they they come in you know hey i really want to fix this i don't want this to be a mess in 30 years what can i do and they don't say i i you know i want to solve this a certain way like what can i do and that's the question we sort of approach everything with and i'm, I'm just impressed by the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that think that way you know that community exists and that that's a voice that is not just heard but well received and invited talking about how to actually solve it, getting down to the details, to the uncomfortable ones too. What I'm looking forward to most, I think, is you know, that, that, that exact mindset I've just described becoming the main narrative around global problems. Mm. Less about, hey, other people do this, other people do that. It's like, what can we actually do realistically? What's our roadmap? Who does what? Details. Let's dig down into the details. They are important. Okay, we understand them now. Great. You do that. I do that. You do that. I do that. Fantastic. Now let's go on that 30 year journey and get it done. I really hope we can have some, some contribution, some positive impact on shaping the narrative, both, you know, in just the public, also in the people who contribute, who work at companies, who work at organizations of any kind that solve the problems causing climate change. Also in governments, we have spoken with a couple of governments already. Some are interested in implementing curriculum changes to focus less on atmospheric physics and how climate change works and more on solutions. It's our general pitch to governments, like replace that atmospheric physics stuff that nobody needs. Just like don't emit CO2. It takes two sentences to explain that to a student. All right. And then talk about solutions. We, we really hope you have a positive impact on that. I think that's what I'm most excited about in the future with climate science. 
That is very well said. And uh, I think it's a mission that a lot of people listening to the podcast can get behind. So if you haven't checked out Climate Science yet, you should. The link will be in the show notes. And Eric, thank you so much for making time for this. It's been a very engaging conversation that I can say. Well, Olu, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure and I love energy. So I'll be eagerly listening to a bunch of your episodes. Thanks for listening to the Energy Talk podcast. You can find us on all podcast listening platforms. Just search for the Energy Talk. Send us an email to at energytalkpodcast at gmail.com.